Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. National Pollinator Week is an annual celebration since 2010 in support of pollinator health. It was initiated and is managed by Pollinator Partnership. This year, National Pollinator Week celebrations will take place across the country from June 19th to the 25th. And in celebration this week, we look closely at one particular group of our native pollinators, the charismatic bumblebees, the more than 250 species worldwide in the genus Bombus. Leif Richardson is an endangered species conservation biologist with the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation, coordinating the community science efforts behind the newest of the society's North American bumblebee atlases, this time in California. Leif, I am so pleased to welcome you to Cultivating Place to learn much more. Thanks for having me, Jennifer. I would like you to introduce yourself to listeners the way you would introduce yourself to a group of strangers? And is there a way you include the role of plants in your life in that identification of who you are and what you do? Yeah, I I guess in professional settings, I usually say that I'm a conservation biologist. Although throughout my career, the word, um, the appellation that stuck with me the most is, is that I'm an ecologist. And I say that in professional settings, but I think it it is also true for me as a person, specifically what I mean. I mean, I work on the science of ecology, which is the study of the interactions between organisms and each other and their environment. Um, but I think that my personal life um, follows some something of a, a similar path. I'm, I'm really interested in species interactions. I particularly um, notice myself interacting with plants and other organisms occasionally and feel like there's a, an analogy between the uh, ecology work that I do um, on the job and the way that I think about the world yeah, like when I'm not that. on the job. So before we move into your trajectory as a conservation biologist or ecologist, I would love to have you take us back a little bit and share with us some of your earliest influences, uh, the people and the places and the plants that grew you into a human for whom this would be both a public and a private meaningful pursuit for you, Leaf. I have always been uh, in the garden, if you will. I grew up with two parents who were both into growing plants. Um, and from my earliest uh, memories, um, they were they were growing a garden um, out in the backyard. Um, I also have two grandparents who were very into gardening, two grandmothers who um, were very into it. Uh, so I, starting in northern New Mexico when I was a little kid and then moving to Burlington, Vermont, when I was a slightly older kid, um, I've had adults in my life who have encouraged me to to garden, actually, or to join them and sit around with them while they um, ten vegetables, transplant flowers, etc. Um, all of these people, all four of them, both of my parents and their mothers, uh, also gave me a feeling of, um, you know, appreciation for the natural world and curiosity for the natural world. 
So one of my grandmothers taught me to identify plants in the in the woods in the springtime um, on a, a couple of memorable mm-hmm. uh, springs of my life. And um, obviously I had an interest that was baked in and it was the same interest that she had. But um, I think about this somewhat frequently. I think that those interactions with my grandparents um, and my parents to a slightly lesser extent <laughs> were really important in cementing who I, who I was or what I or sort of reflecting what I already felt and and yeah. how I already interacted with the world and caused me to be very interested in nature, broadly speaking, and also yeah. the cultivating. Well, and it's interesting that um, contrast between New Mexico and pretty far north Vermont, v- very different landscapes that, depending on when you, you make that transition, must have been kind of powerful. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in northern New Mexico until I was six. And my parents were from both from the East Coast and were um, hippie sorts who were dropping out um, a society, I think you could say, to some extent. Uh, we I, I was born at a, a, a monastery in a wilderness sort of location in northern New Mexico. Lived there for a few years as um, part of a family of lay employees of the of the monks. Um, and then lived on an Indian reservation, uh, Apache, Hickory Apache Reservation in northern New Mexico. And uh, yeah, my memories um, of being a little person um, specifically related to to gardening and plants. Um, my, my parents had, you know, this this little uh, arid lands garden going in the backyard. I, I have some fun memories of that. And I, I think that uh, that affected my early thinking about what I do now as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was six, we moved to the East Coast for a variety of reasons, among them to be closer to family. And um, I had a much more middle class life after that, uh, but a, a, a big garden plot in the backyard mm-hmm. and a lot of time spent in the woods um, with family and friends. Um, it's a much more music place, a, a wetter yeah. place with cold winters, obviously, and a shorter growing season. Um, I I can definitely say for personal reasons that that juxtaposition of homes in my childhood mm-hmm. really marked me in all sorts of ways. And I think that, um, yes, the, the the difference in land and climate probably affected me to some extent just in, yes, I, it was sort of like going to another, another planet, I think, mm-hmm. going from a very dry place to a very wet and cold place. Yeah, yeah. And I, I always find those kind of landscape memory stories that imprint on us at whatever point in our lives for whatever personal reasons are so interesting in the development of what we understand, right? I think if you've always lived in a northern hardwood deciduous forest like Burlington, Vermont, and never been faced with, you know, what the differences can be, or the reverse, if you've only ever lived in an arid uh, landscape with big open views, like they're just so different. And they, but to know them both as a young person and to see people having tended land and plants and other creatures in those very different spaces, I think just it kind of equips you with a different understanding of what the world consists of and, and different kinds of beauty and life forms? I don't know. I, I find that always very, very interesting to me. I agree. I don't, I don't know if I thought about that deeply, but I, I do think having started life in one place 
you know, six years old is a very young age, but mm. whatever, whatever number it is, I have a lot of memories of my life before I moved to the East Coast. And yeah, and uh, I do think that my memories of being a, a young person in Vermont, I remember having a sort of outsider feeling in some ways that mm. partly for personal reasons, probably, but also um, because I was living in a new, a very different place. And I um, as an adult looking back, this is not something I could articulate as a child, but I think that um, um, not only was the, you know, the human dynamic completely different, but uh, the land is different and and mm-hmm. um, the way that you interact with it is different. Um, you you go outside in the snow in the wintertime in ways that and play in different ways that I might not have been used to or um, or uh, there's, there's more pronounced cold, warm seasonality that just kind of seeps into you and, and um, is different from what you what you're aware of. So I I do just pervasively I, I had this feeling of difference of things being different when I crossed the continent as a kid. Yeah. So you go through this big transition, both landscape and family structure and culturally as a young person. Take us from there. What leads you to your final focus on ecology or biology or the sciences that would lead you to where you are now? Walk us through your academic trajectory, Leif. Uh, I went to Earlham College, which is in Indiana, uh, where at the age of 18 or 19, because I had taken a year off after high school, I knew that I loved being outside, hiking, camping. I was interested in plants. Uh, as a teenager, I had been very focused on bird watching as a sort of pursuit. I got really into learning birds. Um, but by the time I got to college, I uh, felt like those were avocations. Those were interests of mine, but not something I'd want to do for a job. <laughs> so, uh, a couple of years taking classes and all sorts of things, but uh, I accidentally, uh, I backed my way into this by taking an ornithology class. And, you know, I love birds, but the idea of the natural sciences really, really caught me. And I eventually discovered botany and trying to st- do a little field study on plant reproductive ecology. Uh, I noticed that the bees were the exciting part of the equation for me. So mm-hmm. this lit a fire under me when I was a, an undergraduate student. And so I eventually decided to go on to graduate school to study ecology and evolutionary biology, which I did at the University of Arizona. Um, I did a master's degree there studying pollination ecology of some Arendland shrubs, actually manzanita. Many of our viewers will be familiar with that plant or that group of plants. Uh, And then I eventually had a variety of jobs working uh, as an ecologist for the state of Vermont and doing some other things. Um, But I... uh, I really wanted to do more research, and I specifically was focusing more and more on uh, pollinators, on bees specifically, uh, even though I was tasked with describing plant communities, tracking populations of rare invertebrates um, in my job at the state of Vermont. And so I eventually uh, decided to go back to college, to, to grad school and, uh, and do a PhD, which I did at Dartmouth College. Hmm. Um, In this case, I was working on pollination ecology, but I was interested in and still am interested in uh, the ways that pathogens and plant chemicals affect the interaction between plants and their pollinating bees. And so what I mean by this is that when bees have certain pathogens, they behave differently on flowers and the outcomes for for plants are different. So bees may uh, become less efficient at 
working the flowers. They may spend more time flying around be between visits to flowers um, if they have certain pathogens. At the same time, um, those chemicals that plants make uh, our medicines and the flavors in our foods and the colors in our flowers and our foods, these plant secondary metabolite chemicals, they're not only found in leaves. For example, when uh, uh, we have nicotine in the leaves of tobacco plants, that's a mm -hmm. Uh, an evolved response of the plant to having herbivores and nicotine is a very potent toxin for invertebrates. I mean, we interpret that as being an adaptive response to being munched on by, by herbivores. Yeah. Well, it turns out that those chemicals are also present in nectar and pollen. And mm -hmm. this is counterintuitive given that plants would seem to be attracting pollinators with those two plant materials, um, not trying to repel them or protect right. Them right. plant products from visitors, from consumers. And so uh, what I found in my research is that some of these chemicals, even while being toxic to insects at larger doses, are medicinal to bees at smaller doses, at the smaller doses that they, at which they occur naturally in plant nectar. So I studied nicotine, anabasine, caffeine, iridoid glycoside chemicals, and some others. And so roughly half of the compounds that I, that I worked on, we found that they had a beneficial effect on the bees we fed them to. Namely, that they cause a reduction in the parasite load, gut parasite load for these bees. So it's almost, I mean, just make sure that I'm following you and listeners are too. Essentially, it's the idea of, it's the same concept, whether or not it's consciously played out, of a vaccine. That you are microdosing on something toxic in order to, uh, in order to medicate. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And okay. Keep, keep going. Yep. And the way to think about it is just like us. There are costs and benefits to consuming certain medicines. Yeah. Um, I take a medicine daily that is essential to my, my staying healthy, but it also has some side effects that I don't enjoy. Um, it's exactly like that for insects. We have to think about these trade-offs that they experience. And of course, plants do as well. Um, the second part of that story in that research is that it's one thing for bees to benefit from consuming, passively consuming these chemicals when they're consuming nectar for carbohydrates and pollen for protein. But what I found in the field was that when bees uh, had a pathogen infection, they were um, more likely to seek out the plants that had the highest concentrations of these chemicals in their nectar. So we characterized the variability of the chemicals in a population of plants in the nectar, and there was a lot of variation. And we then did an experiment where I I tweaked the concentrations in an array of flowers that I controlled. And then I let bees forage on them. And then I studied those bees to see if they had parasites. And I found, um, because I tracked them between each, each flower visit and I timed each flower visit, I found that when they were sick, they were at the pharmacy shopping for the medicine. Yeah. They were going from flower to flower until they found the ones that I had spiked with the highest concentrations of these chemicals. They're called iridoid glycosides. And the plant is turtlehead in the genus Chelone. Some people yep. may be familiar with that. It's just a wonderful plant um, in many ways. But anyway, this is an example of what we call self-medication in yeah. the world. And wow. we, didn't, we we didn't know that um, we didn't know the bees did this. We do know that that great apes do this. We know that some other vertebrates do this. There are a number of records of this in the scientific literature, but it's somewhat unusual. We tend to think of this being you know, requiring a large brain and the ability to kind of reason through the the cause and effect of things. But here we have a system involving 
bees with tiny little brains and plants without brains. And this interaction is taking place and it's being mediated by plant chemistry, which the plants are controlling, which the bees are benefiting from, but which the bees can experience detriments from. Um, this is, I'm happy to say that, you know, I, I this is what I studied for my PhD and I, I find it just a really fascinating system and yeah. something that continues to reward me when I think about, when I think about the plants I work with now and the bees that I work with now. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In celebration of our upcoming National Pollinator Week, June 19th to the 25th, we're in conversation today with endangered species conservation biologist Leif Richardson. Having studied the lives of bumblebees, a specific group of bees in the genus Bombus, for much of his career, Leif is currently coordinating the California Bumblebee Atlas with the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Protection. There are currently eight bumblebee atlas projects overseen by a variety of scientific organizations, including Xerces, across North America. When we come back, Leif will share more about his work with Xerces. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to preserve, share, and celebrate gardens and America's gardening traditions. Recently, the Conservancy announced its generous gift of $93,000 to Bard College for construction drawings that will be used for the vital rehabilitation of Blythewood Garden, an extraordinary 20th century formal Italianate walled garden looking over the Hudson River and the Catskill Mountains. The project aims to repair and enhance the garden's historic features, which have been hard hit by the passage of time. It also aims to continue the historic use of this site as an architectural pleasure garden. Learn more about the Conservancy's preservation efforts at gardenconservancy.org forward slash preservation. Hey, it's Jennifer. So... Last week, we talked about who is invited to visit our gardens. And this week, I am so happy to say that John and I have seen three of our regional bumblebees in my town garden and all five of the species that nest in and near his canyon garden. That seems like a great celebration for Pollinator Week and the crescendo leading us to the summer solstice. You can hear these bees before you see them, and you can spend a good part of any morning just listening and watching as they gather. They are so intent, so methodical, so diligent, so magical, and so important to the native plants of our place. May all of our gardens be habitats that welcome that recognize and support these magnificent creatures co-evolved with the miraculous plants of our places and on whom we all make our lives. 
Happy National Pollinator Week to all of you in your gardens, from us in our gardens. Leif Richardson is an endangered species conservation biologist specializing in bumblebees, those iconic bees in the genus Bombus. Leaf is coordinating the California Bumblebee Atlas with the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Protection, and as we come back to our conversation with Leaf, he is sharing more about the society's work. After graduate school, I did a postdoctoral job at the University of Vermont for two and a half years, uh, and I did research on um, some of the same concepts in a crop plant in um, highbush blueberry and looked at pollination of that plant by wild bees the effect of plant chemistry on those bees, and importantly, the effect of uh, below-ground mutualists on above-ground mutualists. So um, these beneficial mycorrhizal fungi that interact with ericaceous plants, um, um, blueberry being a vaccinium mm-hmm. in the family ericaceae, this, this specialized set of, of mycorrhizae that uh, fungi that it interacts with, and it benefits from that interaction. And what I found there is that the uh, those interactions below ground were affecting the floral display of the plant and also the quality of the nectar that the plant was producing, and thus the the behavior of the bees on the flowers. Basically, it looks like from this work that mycorrhizal fungi can um, affect plant reproduction in beneficial ways, and not just by um, increasing nutrients to the plants, but also by tweaking the behavior of the mutualist bees. Um, after that, I worked as a consultant for uh, uh, three years, um, doing largely doing pesticide research, so studying um, this, the sensitivity of bees to pesticides um, and working on risk assessment work for um, new pesticides coming to market, um, doing conservation work to some extent with, with bees. Um, from there, I moved on to the Xerces Society. So um, that's where I work now. And um, I, my principal responsibility is to lead yeah. the California Bumblebee Atlas, which is a, a community science project. Sometimes we call this citizen science, although it has really nothing to do with citizenship. <laughs> so I'll refer to it okay, as community wait. science. Before we go, before we go there, I want to I want to pull back a little bit. First of all, the work that you were doing studying the all the interactions and relationships around this high bush blueberry, uh, as you know, the ericaceous family. Am I right in thinking that bumblebees are a particularly effective pollinator on such a plant? You are. Um, So work by a grad student in the lab that I was in at the University of Vermont showed that uh, the the blueberry farmers in Vermont um, experience visits to their plants from something like 90 different species of wild bees and one uh, cultivated bee, the honeybee, European honeybee, the Western honeybee, um, and that... uh, some of those bees are specialists, pollen specialists. They need blueberry pollen to reproduce. Mm-hmm. Most of those bees are generalists who are foraging for nectar or pollen. Um, and only a few of them are really important to the outcomes for the plant. So he found that something like five of those bees are responsible for, I'm, I'm doing this from memory, right. but something like 80% of the, the visits to plants. Wow. And two of those were bumblebees and two of them were in the genus Andrina, uh, the mining bees. Um, you're right that bumblebees are particularly good pollinators of blueberry and other plants in that family. And the reason is that uh, bumblebees, uh, they they can sonicate flowers when they're foraging for pollen. It's called buzz pollination. And so what the bee does is she uh, hangs off of the flower uh, and then and then vibrates her flight muscles 
at the same time that she's she's uh, moving other muscles in her thorax. Um, and so the wings aren't moving, but the whole body is shaking. And it's a it's a sound like a like a skill saw from a distance. You can hear it very, very plainly. Mm-hmm. And uh, what this does is it just vibrates the flower and causes pollen to rain out onto the bee's body. But uh, blueberry is a special plant in that it has uh, anthers that are, have just a restricted small opening where pollen can exit those anthers. They're known as porosal anthers, referring to this pore-shaped opening that they have. Um, I'll say that a lot of plants have have anthers that are more like tacos. They just sort of flap open like a tortilla, and there's there's the pollen, and, and a bee can just scrape it away and take it. Um, but these parasitical anthers, um, you can't the bee cannot get inside of them. So she's got to vibrate the flower to get the pollen out. Bumblebees do this a lot. Um, other pollinators like honeybees are not able to do it and therefore are just unable to harvest pollen from those those uh, blueberry plants unless it's spilled previously by a, a sonicating bee like a bumblebee. Mm, interesting. And so you go from what sounds like a, a Suzanne Simard kind of language of trees or or communication of plants and animals study in which the beneficial mycorrhiza are are improving the situation for both the plant and then the pollinators and therefore most likely the fruit and seed set of the plant so there's this lovely positive feedback loop in which everyone is working together and to one another's benefit thus mutualism do i have that pretty correctly uh, yes, all of this work is about mutualism, but I think it's important to understand the terms of engagement for for mutualism in, in nature. And mm-hmm. in this case, pollination, um, some people have have said that we should instead be calling it a reciprocal exploitation. <laughs> um, and this is because the bees are are not um, actively pollinating; they're not doing this out of an, a feeling of altruism, right. or right. Um, they're not doing this on purpose, if you will. They're just foraging for their own nectar and pollen resources, which are the food items that bees need to reproduce, right. need to make more bees. So they go to the farm or the, the wild plant and they pick up their, their food there. And so do, in so doing, they move pollen between male and female parts of flowers and affect pollination. Um, the, bee, the, the plants are also, um, we, I think from an evolutionary standpoint, we have to interpret them as, as being self-interested. Right. And so uh, plants offer nectar uh, they offer pollen, but they also um, they restrict who can eat that pollen by, for example, adding these chemicals that are unpalatable or toxic to some of the visitors, but not to other visitors. So plants can sanction pollinators and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, there's cheating that happens in both directions. So we have bees and other flower visitors who do not pollinate, but they do remove resources. Right. So that's like the what we term. And I again, like. I'm noting our language of cheating or yes. or stealing or like the the nectar robbers and Robin, yeah and yeah. and and part of me reacts because I'm I'm sort of like well they are neither meaning necessarily to pollinate the plant but neither are they meaning to cheat the plant uh, those are all human words we're putting onto these yes, creatures that are that have figured out this really elegant system for whatever reasons they've done it and it is working well to their benefit. Right. Yes. And the reason I'm summarizing this is because then there is this, again, stark contrast in your life where you move from studying this elegant and beautifully functioning system to the use of pesticides and their impact on pollinators and bees and 
unpack that a little bit more because go from studying how things are working well to ways in which they maybe are perceived to not be working well and therefore are intervened with. And therefore we have this cascade of other issues that come with that must have been a little bit depressing leaf. Yes. uh, I will say um, I really enjoyed working for this employer, uh, this consulting firm. It's a wonderful place. Um, and it was a good job in many ways. Um, but working on pesticide risk issues can be uh, disappointing at minimum to think about the effect that we're having on the natural world in um, the ways that we produce our food, um, namely through the application of vast quantities of, of chemicals um, to fertilize our plants, to remove plants that we find undesirable, and to remove insects and other antagonists of the plants. Um, I did uh, some conservation work in that job, basically thinking about ways to protect bees from pesticide exposure. Uh, we also did work for industry looking at, um, at, at risk assessment science. So trying to figure out um, what's the, the minimum dose that a bee can take or a colony of bees can take before you see uh, a negative impact as one example. Um, one thing that I'll highlight that I did in that work, uh, traditionally the EPA asks um, uh, registrants, these pesticide companies and others, to demonstrate that their products are safe for humans and a, a range of other non-human animals. And for uh, many, many invertebrates are covered by um, the honeybee. So this whole battery of tests to see whether pesticides are risky for honeybees stands in as a surrogate mm. for a number of other insect groups. Inc- and that would, of course, include all of the other bees. Yeah. Um, in North America, we have something like 4,000 species of bees. Right. Here in California, we have 1,700 species of native bees and just one one Western honeybee. Right. So they live, their their life, life histories are so variable. Um, their pesticide sensitivities are variable. Uh, and uh, Western honeybees are a, a fantastically interesting animal, but they are just not representative of the other animals that they're surrogates for in this testing arena. So uh, one of the things I did was push for the adoption of test methods that would study pesticide at risk to bumblebees. Mm-hmm. And um, the idea is not only to uh, care about bumblebees, but all these these native bees. And the bumblebee would be a, a better surrogate for some other native bees. Mm-hmm. So we did experiments like um, deploying bumblebee colonies in the field and then experimentally exposing them to different concentrations of of uh, an insecticide through uh, a supplemental uh, a nectar solution that they were drinking. So you have several different treatment levels uh, and a control, and then you're looking at the uh, development of the colony over the growing season as the bees forage naturally on, in the environment. Um, yes, it is. Uh, I, I, I have had a hard time working in the pesticide world. Um, and um, one way I, I just find that um, I understand uh, why we use pesticides, and um, I understand there are some economic realities to pesticides, given the way that we produce our food and fiber now. But um, it's my personal belief and my studied belief as someone um, working in this space, um, you know, doing science in this space, being on the inside of things, that this is a fundamentally broken system and that our regulatory system is broken and compromised that the exposures are often higher than we estimate them to be and real world outcomes of applying one pesticide are often more complicated than we pretend they are 
Uh, so for example, there are effects of numerous pesticides on bees. However, there are much worse synergistic effects when you combine certain products. So particular fungicides and particular insecticides combined together are um, many times worse for the bee than either of the two or the combination of the two separately. And of course, agriculture relies on actual intentional mixing of chemicals and repeated applications of different chemicals. And so bees are exposed to these mixtures every day on the farm, but um, that's not a part of regulatory science. So um, yeah, I, I've found um, this work to be very interesting and I think it's important, but it's also, uh, it's, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to do it with a smile on your face sometimes. Yeah. And with any progress seeming impossible or so slow that you worry it won't be enough in in time. Um, I appreciate all of that perspective. And uh, so one question before we leave that, when you were uh, advocating for this improved um, oversight at, at a policy level of how the EPA evaluates uh, safety um, using the, the bumblebees, many, I don't know, there, I, I forget exactly how many different bumblebee species are in the US, but it's something in the 40s. Yeah. Yes. And we'll get to all of that. But the, the point being, you did see a little bit of progress at that policy level. Yes. Yes. Uh, I will say starting in around uh, the year 2010, the EPA signaled that they were going to uh, study this issue with using honeybees as a surrogate species for other bees, um, and that they were interested in adopting some of the regulatory uh, science that the EU countries had adopted already yep. with respect to testing pesticides on other bees, principally a bumblebee and a mason bee. Mm -hmm. And mason bees are a solitary bee that have a, a very different lifestyle than these social bees like bumblebees right. and honeybees. Um, through the 2010s, the EPA put out a, a number of um, important position papers and statements saying, um, we, we mean this and we're developing methods. And at some point, we are going to start incorporating this into the standard data package, the sort of data call-in that they issue for uh, pesticide registrants when they're re-registering pesticides or when they're registering new chemicals. Somewhere around 2017, 2018, the EPA um, abruptly announced that they were canning that, that effort and um, that they were no longer going to work towards uh, incorporating bumblebee um, regulatory science into the, the the overall package of risk assessment for pesticides. That would have been under former President Trump. And have we had any reclaiming of, of progress on this kind of position from the EPA under the Biden administration? Well, I, I don't talk to anyone in the EPA and I and I can't speak for for okay. them. Um, but I uh, speaking to my old colleagues in this in this consulting firm, in fact, just last week, I, I understand that the direction we're continuing in the same direction, moving away from mm. um, developing new modes of uh, new modalities of studying pesticide risk to pollinators that we're going to just use the honeybee uh. as the test subject for now. Um, so, uh, you know, from a from a the, the the things that I hear from the consulting firm have to do with with the business, but. Um, that reflects what's what EPA is telling the, the clients that mm -hmm. they need to do. So, um, yeah, I don't I don't think we're, we're seeing a lot of progress in that in that area right now. 
This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In celebration of our upcoming National Pollinator Week, we're in conversation today with endangered species conservation biologist Leif Richardson. He is coordinating the California Bumblebee Atlas with the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Protection. We'll be right back for more with Leif as to the status of pesticide use and bumblebees. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer again, and I want to share a story with you, a story of great happiness to me, a story of the power of just one gardener's voice and the connections we as gardeners make across time and space, weaving and growing our world. Just last week, I got a note from Dr. Emily Brettel of the Merrim Collaborative, a Michigan-based ecological landscape group working with schools, organizations, and families to co-create transformative educational experiences at the intersection of artistry, ecology, and sustainability. This group nurtures open-hearted connection, meaningful communication, and artful collaboration as a means to make real change happen. Dr. Brettel wrote to me saying this, quote, I had to let you know that I just had an initial conversation with Pat Reynolds of Heritage Growers Seed in Northern California about starting a seed amplification project at the ecological field station that I run. I only heard of his work through Cultivating Place, so thank you. He was so kind and generous with sharing his expertise, and now it is time to get my head to sort through and organize the details to put a plan in place. End quote. Gah. That is my greatest hope right there, gardeners. That is my greatest hope with cultivating place is that this kind of good seeding, great amplifying, and growing takes place, takes root and thrives because together we really do grow the world and ourselves better. Keep growing. Leif Richardson is an endangered species conservation biologist specializing in bumblebees, the bees of the genus Bombus. Leaf is coordinating the California Bumblebee Atlas with the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Protection. The California Bumblebee Atlas is one in a series of eight projects studying bumblebees across North America. Before the break, Leaf was sharing more about the tragically insufficient standards for testing and then regulating the impact of rampant pesticide use in our world. As we come back to our conversation, he is sharing more about these dangers and some small progress in more research being done as to combinations of pesticides on our bumblebee populations. But forewarning, these are painful truths in our world truths we as gardeners can have a say in. Any progress on the idea of evaluating cocktails of pesticide, fungicide, of any of the biocides, let's just use Rachel Carson's overarching word, biocides, 
any progress on evaluating at that level? I mean, again, like to equate with us, it's exactly like having, you know, your eye doctor or your heart doctor prescribe a new medication and you need to make sure with all your other doctors that this cocktail of total medications aren't negatively impacting your overall health. That's right. That's right. If you take a drug that impacts your liver strongly, you're not supposed to drink alcohol. But if we extend that metaphor to bees in, a, in an agricultural setting, we throw a bunch of, of, of prescriptions at them and we say, go ahead and go to the bar. We you know, keep drinking. It's not a problem. Um, yes, there is progress in our gaining of knowledge about these, these um, cocktails of pesticides in that a number of researchers are studying this now. So there's more and more research coming out about specific combinations of pesticides and their impacts on uh, wild bees and commercial bees. Uh, I don't think there's been much regulatory work that's followed from that at either a federal or a state level. Um, the other place there's been some modest progress is simply in the recognition that uh, a pesticide is not just one molecule. It's almost always a cocktail in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So um, there are adjuvants that are that are um, combined with the, the active ingredient. Let's say the active ingredient is clothianidin. Uh, um, a neonicotinoid. When you buy that off the shelf as a farmer or um, you know, have a ship to you, whatever, you get a mixture that is not just clothianidin. It might also include, and I'm speculating here, but this is typical. It might include surfactants that make the chemical stick to leaves better. Mm -hmm. um, it might include uh, wetting agents or um, other, other chemicals that make the thing work better. And of course, that's in the, the interest of the designers of the product. But when they test the product, they only test the clothianidin. They don't test oh. the mixture. So um, we're learning that some of these adjuvants have synergistic negative impacts on the bees when combined with these active ingredients. So there's a growing field of science looking at these adjuvants, um, which I will add are completely unregulated by the EPA. Um, in fact, you know, someone at the EPA is probably aware of the, of the list of chemicals that go into a product, but they're not um, tested. And they're not regulated. So it's a little bit of a Wild West situation with the adjuvant technology. So producers of pesticides, as I understand it, need to get the main active ingredient registered, but they don't have to worry about some of the other chemicals that are in the formulation. So we're seeing some research in that and a recognition that for bees, some of the risk comes from those secondary molecules that are in the products that we don't even think about that are, that are necessary to the efficacy of the active ingredient. God, you're making my head and my heart hurt, Leaf. Um, yeah. And that's a good thing because this is kind of, I think, one of the important things that gardeners understand when they understand or they think about what they choose to use in their gardens, to lobby for, to vote for. This is the kind of awareness we absolutely have to have, especially as we are facing this loss of pollinator uh, health and um, quantity and vigor across all levels. And so let's move now to your work at the Xerces Society, which is one of the great bright lights in our world right now, fighting so hard for increased understanding, increased research, increased policy advocacy uh, for the understanding and protection of these uh, this whole level of life known as invertebrates. Give us a tiny bit of background on 
remind people exactly what invertebrate means, and then talk a little bit about your exact role at Xerxes before it became, and maybe it wasn't, maybe it was always focused on the California bumblebee atlas, but take us to the idea of a bumblebee atlas after you remind us of just general invertebrate definition. Yeah, um, so we're called the Xerxes Society for Invertebrate Conservation, and we just celebrated our 50-year anniversary, so Ooh. we've been around for a while. Yeah, um, We are probably the nation's preeminent invertebrate conservation organization, mm-hmm. um, not to say that there are very many of them, but we're a leader in this area. Um, invertebrates are those animals that lack a backbone, so uh, they are animals, just like vertebrates are animals. Um, this includes insects, it includes spiders. Uh, it includes bivalves. It includes marine organisms that have shells like crabs. Um, uh, so it's it's all of those different organisms that um, have evolved to have uh, external structures that they hitch their muscles to or that, that form the hard parts of the body as opposed to having an internal skeleton with a backbone the way we vertebrates have. And so uh, my work involves the terrestrial invertebrates and specifically bees. But of course, we do uh, at Xerxes, we we um, think broadly about these things. So we have a, a staff person who's dedicated to muscle conservation. Um, so freshwater mussels are um, are even more of conservation concern than the bees that I work on, um, in, especially in the Western U.S. And so we've we've lost a great deal of diversity and certainly a lot of abundance in our freshwater mussels. Um, so that's very important work. And, you know, the general public, we don't tend to think about mussels mm-hmm. unless unless it's on our plate and um, something delicious we're about to put in our mouths. Um, but these are native animals that uh, that have been here for millennia and have co-evolved with um, the other organisms and the, the abiotic environment here. And they belong here. They have intrinsic value and um, we should conserve them. So we do cast the broad net. We, we just started a firefly yeah. atlas community science program. Mm. We work on butterflies extensively, on bees extensively, and uh, uh, snails and other sorts of things as well. So um, I joined the Xerxes Society about two and a half years ago, and I, I joined in order to lead the California Bumblebee Atlas. And this is that uh, community science project to uh, to inventory the state's native bees and figure out where they still occur, uh, where they've declined, um, where uh, individual species ranges may have shifted due to um, human uh, development patterns or climate change or drought, perhaps. Uh, there are a lot of unanswered questions about the status of these animals in California. Right. And um, we have a rich history of scientists doing research on bumblebees in California. It's not to say that nobody has looked. There, there are, is a long history of work and many tens of thousands of historical specimen uh, records. So we have observations of the bees in the field from the past. Yeah. Um, but uh, we've never had a systematic survey that would look at um, all of the uh, all of the bees of the state and ask which ones are in need of conservation and which are not. Uh, what are the habitat parameters that are important to these bees in, in various uh, ecosystems of the state? Yeah. And is there, there's a history of state kind of boundaried bumblebee atlases so I was involved in some of the earlier ones uh, outside of the Xerxes Society. Um, in Vermont in uh, 2012 through 2014, we did um, a, a community science atlas for bumblebees around the state. Uh, and then we did one in Maine um, uh, after that. There have been other state-level efforts 
um, that I wasn't involved in. Um, I believe there's one in Ohio. There have been a couple of other Atlas projects. But Xerces started uh, doing this Bumblebee Atlas model something like six years ago. And we uh, have found it to be a really successful way to collect this data. Mm -hmm. uh, again, we have colleagues who work in academia or government research, um, and, and they do fantastic work. And a lot of what we know about the status of these bees is due to those folks. But uh, we find that the community science model is, a, is just an amazing way to leverage uh, the labor of many hundreds of volunteers mm -hmm. and yeah. to find out much more quickly um, what we need to know in order to, um, you know, to act in what many have called a crisis discipline. We, we know we're losing bees, we're, we're losing diversity, and uh, we don't know just how bad it is, but we need to know and we need to know soon um, so we can act. And uh, the Bumblebee Atlas model has been really effective in that manner. Um, so we are currently active in 14 states across the U.S., and we will likely be active in more next year. So we just continually are opening new projects. And the goal, I would say one goal would be to do this everywhere and get a comprehensive national vantage point on the status of, of the nation's uh, native bumblebees. So in California's bumblebee atlas, I, I think it should be uh, noted that as this immense state with immense diversity of plant and geologic life, as well as a, a biodiversity hotspot, it's got to be one, extremely complicated, but two, extremely interesting. Indeed, it is both of those things. Uh, it's complicated to figure out how to survey a, a land area as large as California um, in you know one field season uh, or a set of three field seasons. Also, how to do it with trained volunteer labor. Um, so these volunteers are participants in the project. They're trained by us. Um, so they're not rank amateurs. They're not people right. we just sort of stuck a net in their hand and told them to swing the net. Um, they know a lot about the animals that they're working with. They know a lot about the methods of the project and also about um, environmental compliance needs in the state. And so, you know, sensitive natural resources other than bumblebees. Give us a little bit of the process and and what field season you're in and what does it look like to become a volunteer and get this kind of training so that you can participate, Leaf. This is the second year of the survey of the project. And the way it works is that um, people who are interested uh, come to our website, which is cabumblebeeatlas.org, and they register for the project. Uh, they then can sign up for a training, which is a two-hour workshop with me and my colleagues on an evening. Um, if they can't make one of our scheduled trainings, they can they can watch a pre-recorded version. After that, they need to um, take a short quiz to get added to our scientific collecting permit, which was issued by the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, and which enables all of our work, enables us to handle the bees, including the rare ones. So we know the ones we already know are rare. So uh, volunteers then, they adopt a grid cell. We've gridded out the state in 50 kilometer by 50 kilometer uh, squares. And so a volunteer will just um, choose one of those and, and speak for it and say that I'm going to work in this area. It's obviously a very large landmass there. Within that, we ask that person to find their, their uh, area of interest. Um, and we ask them to do two surveys per summer, per growing season. Mm -hmm. They can do um, two surveys on the same day in different locations, separated by five kilometers or so, or they can survey the same site um, on successive visits separated by three weeks or more. 
So we want to get some variation across the landscape, mm-hmm. spatial variation, or we want to get some temporal variation from a site. Gotcha. Um, some volunteers do do those two surveys, and that's what they do. Uh, we have other volunteers who have done almost 40 surveys in uh, in 2022. So you can do as much of this as as you want to. And um, generally speaking, volunteers have my support and the support of um, my colleagues at CDFW, that's California Department of Fish and Wildlife, and others. And so we really just try to facilitate their work, um, their volunteer work for us. Uh, so after they collect their data, they're supposed to take a guess at the identity of each bee, but they also photograph those bees and then they release them unharmed. So this is a no-kill project. Yeah, which is really interesting. Can you walk people through that? Because uh, because I think that will be of interest to listeners. You're not netting them and putting them in a kill jar. That's right. Talk about the process that you're training people in because it's it's fun. Yeah, uh, we we learn to use nets and vials, uh, uh, just little plastic vials, but we don't use kill jars. Um, basically, we we catch a bee in the net, we transfer it to a clean plastic vial, and then that goes into a cooler of ice. And we do this for 45 minutes, and then we sit down with the cooler. And one at a time, we pull the bees out. They're anesthetized by the cold, and you have about five minutes to handle them, uh, to photograph them, to flip them upside down so you can see their belly for a second, et cetera, until they they start to shiver and wake up and become able to sting and then become able to fly. Um, there's very little uh, uh, risk of being stung in this work. Um, it can, of course, happen. You're working with stinging insects. But the point here is that we chill them and then uh, they're immobilized and we can take really great macro photos of them where individual hairs are visible. Um, so part of the training is is um, to train the volunteers to use their, their cell phones or their better cameras to take really nice macro uh, uh, photos of these bees, which are necessary for identification. Again, the bees are all released. And so we don't, we just don't have very much impact at all on their populations. There is some research that um, into the effect of collecting on populations themselves. Um, most of those studies say that there's no problem with collecting bees, um, destructive sampling or killing, uh, meaning that you can take a few individuals out of a population of thousands and, and it's not going to make a measurable impact on the population. Um, however, for various reasons, we feel like a, a conservation-focused um, um, community science project has no need uh, to, to kill and it also, if we were taking specimens, there's a lot of labor involved in the curation of those specimens. And our work is conservation focused. We're interested in, in gaining this information and then using it to make change. And uh, we don't need to have a museum full of specimens to do that. We need to have accurately identified insect photos, uh, photo vouchers, um, which are as good for our purposes, are as good as um, as specimen-based work. Yeah. Now, specimens are very important to other other realms of of inquiry, mm-hmm. and uh, they're critical actually to our conservation of of these insects, uh, more broadly speaking. But for this community science, it's just not necessary to kill bees, and I'm I'm happy to say that we we can uh, catch and release. Yeah, and it's you know having been an assistant on several surveys last summer, it just feels so much better to know that you are not killing something in order to hopefully help save something, and it is a, a very easy process once you get it down. I think the hardest part uh, for for me as the assistant was 
you know, watching the bee in the net get into the jar. That can be a little tricky. But after that, it was it was it was easy. And then you learn this beautiful intimacy of how these creatures are identified, the different shapes and the different colors and the different faces. And like the the way you are asked to take the photos gives you a much greater understanding of just how tricky it is. Uh, to understand the difference between some of these species that you are documenting. That's right. I think that gardeners will understand the the kind of joy and intimacy of discovering a really cool plant on a, on a walk or in someone else's yard and, you know, getting that up close to the flower and mm-hmm. looking at the structures and smelling it. And by contrast, the bees in that same garden are zipping by you and they're tiny and you might see a flash of color. You might see them land for a second, but you can't be that intimate with them. Um, but in our project, yes, you have a minute with this, this anesthetized animal where you can ha- you can handle it and gently spread the wings and um, pet it if you want to. It's yeah. your fingers smell like flowers afterwards. It's, yeah. It is a sort of intimacy with, with nature that the method allows. And it's, I can say I do a lot of field trainings with our volunteer corps. So I meet people statewide. Um, I'm actually heading out um, to do one of these um, this morning. And um, um, the the wonder that children and adults alike experience when they handle a potentially stinging but just gorgeous insect like this is it's just like a plant person at the at the botanical garden or something. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's it's a really special thing. There's a there's a reverence to it. So at this point, you're in season two. And you are continuing trainings. You and I are speaking in April. Uh, this will air in June. How many trained, you know, community members do you hope to have for this field summer? It's hard to say exactly how many we need, and so therefore I say the more the better. Yeah. Um, and we have a platform that's that's scalable. Um, you know, um, we could we could bring in twice as many volunteers, and I could. I, I might not be able to handle all of the email, but I could handle the, our systems can handle all of the registrations and all of the the contacts through, you know, through um, bulk email and and trainings and such. So um, so the larger, the better is kind of the the, the idea. Uh, we had about 250 volunteers last year and the project is growing quickly. Mm-hmm. So I anticipate we'll have we'll have a good deal more than that this year. And so um, that's. That's around 500 surveys for 250 people. If if each of them did a pair of surveys as as we asked them to do, um, and so you can see the power here, the the combinatorial effect of um, hundreds of people doing the same using the same method, uh, and then submitting all of the data to the same place, and those photo vouchers being identified by by me and my colleagues. So a, a restricted set of experts. Um, we can assemble in a short period of time a very large data set that's um, that's about now. It's about what the bees are doing now and what the status of um, these native insects is in California this year, which I think is powerful. Very powerful. And so with that in mind, um, and I know we're, we're getting close to our time here, so I don't want to overextend you. As you look at what you have collected and what you hope to collect in this field season, at what point will you start collating the data into actionable uh, policy work? Well, we've already started analyzing the data for 2022. And if people are interested in seeing this, they can go to that website uh, for the California Bumblebee Atlas. And we have a couple of pages of project highlights. And it's just a statistical summary, uh, graphs and 
maps showing where we worked and what we found. Uh, but this work, this work is um, also already being used to make conservation and management decisions. Uh, specifically, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife is now protecting four species of bumblebees that are candidates for listing as endangered or threatened under the state's Endangered Species Act. Um, and we expect decisions on those in the next, uh, I'm guessing, maybe 12 months or so. One of those species is broadly distributed in California, and the other three are, are restricted to special montane and other types of habitats. So that one is called Crotch's bumblebee, Bombus crotchii. And um, it's found in the Central Valley. It's found extensively south of the transverse ranges in Los Angeles and San Diego and, um, and uh, areas in between. Um, and so this bee has a nexus with human development and human agriculture. And so we are seeing CDFW um, ask uh, developers to do field surveys for bumblebees. And we're seeing a lot of that this year. So um, this is the first time that that's happened. And of course, we have the California uh, Environmental Quality Act or CEQA, which is the enabling legislation that allows CDFW to ask for these surveys, as I understand it. Um, and this is the first time that these bumblebees have been a subject of those requests from, from government. So um, our data is helping to inform the policies that CDFW is developing. And it's also helping to inform their decision making about whether or not to require survey work. And by, by that, I mean, if we found Bombus crotchii, the crotchus bumblebee, in a location that then turns out to be part of a development project, um, CDFW in all likelihood will require more surveys in that area to further characterize the, po the population and try mm -hmm. to figure out what kind of mitigation would be possible. Um, ho however, if there was no record there and it wasn't likely habitat, the CDFW probably wouldn't, it might not require a survey. So our uh, efforts are helping us understand where the bees occur and where they don't, and therefore they're driving some of this environmental review, which I, I know from the perspective of business is a hassle, um, but uh, from the perspective of those who conserve nature and who benefit from nature, which by the way is you know all of us. All of us. This is really important. This is really yeah. important that we've brought one more set of organisms under the tent of um, of of careful stewardship. And, yes. you know, we put ourselves as, as people in the, in the driver's seat in terms of stewardship of nature. And um, this is a step in the right direction. Mm. Careful and caring stewardship, uh, which necessarily should be very slow and very thoughtful um, in these kinds of situations. When you look back over your trajectory, you know, and I, I'm thinking even back as far as your early life in a monastery and then in community with a uh, Native American uh, culture and then at a, a Quaker school, Earlham College. And I, I think about um, this idea of networks of life, both culturally and spiritually. What are your greatest hopes for this kind of work in our larger world at the largest level, Leif? Uh, I don't want to sound critical of anyone or, or everyone, but I think in general, we're disconnected from the natural world and we're disconnected from a lot of things by the way that we live. And we are the luckiest humans in history in many ways, but we're also the most disconnected in many ways. Um, I am glad for 
the medical discoveries that, you know, allow me to be healthy and, and the technology that helps me have a happy life or whatever. But I find that um, we, we are, uh, as we accept um, these advancements, uh, we're going farther and farther away from, from being outside, literally speaking, and figurative speak, figuratively speaking, we are going farther and farther away from, from regular interaction with non-human organisms. And the kind of personal connections that happen when we interact with other organisms, whether it's our pets or um, horses or, <laughs> or plants, if we're gardeners, um, or the natural world, if we like to walk on a trail somewhere, or the ocean, if we like to sit on the beach. Um, these are all things that connect us. And I, 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 at the risk of sounding kind of corny here, um, I, you know, I've lived for 52 years. And at this point, it's my, my studied belief that we need these things and um, they make us happy and make us feel a sense of meaning. Um, and so I think that there's value in conservation for functional reasons, like for um, for utilitarian reasons, we need to con bees are a great example. We need bees to pollinate our crops. Wild bees are responsible for a substantial fraction of the pollination of of our crops, whether we know it or not. So there's this utilitarian need for bees. But I think it's important to re recognize that um, nature is good for everyone, and it's not because it's utilitarian. It's not because we have these these values of utility from nature, it's it's this other thing. It's this thing that you're part of it, whether no matter like what your experiences are or who you see yourself as, you are an animal and you do eat plants and you eat other animals maybe, and you participate in the, the big web of life. So I know that to me, <laughs> to me, this sounds a little cringy, but it's pretty basic. And I think whether or not you acknowledge it, it is just a fact of life whether or not you swim in this ocean of, of stuff that I do, I think um, everybody feels feels something good from those interactions. And um, um, so, yeah, I think I think my interest in gardening and in plants connect me and the, my professional interest in bees, you know, connects me to nature, but it these things connect me to people as well. So, um, so yeah, I think this is all, this is all very important to all of us and um, I guess one benefit from my work that I see is that people get turned on to um, interacting with nature. Um, this this little world of bee, bee work with volunteers, um, we see people who didn't go to college to study bees or anything like that, getting extremely excited about it and becoming um, becoming advocates and turning on other people. Yeah, that is a that is a beautiful trophic cascade. If you were going to pick three plants, especially plants perhaps that will attract and support our bumblebees, what would those three plants be? Well, um, uh, I, I have a hard time just narrowing it to three plants. Of course. So I'll, I'll pick three that I really like. One is is peppers, the, the genus capsicum, um, cultivated peppers. I love to grow food, and one of the things I always grow is peppers whether I uh, am living in a cold Northern place or, or hot and sunny Southern California, um, I love to grow these, these plants. Um, and I'm particularly interested in the, the sort of landrace um, heirloom type peppers that developed in Central America and, and Mexico um, and South America um, and the Southern United States, what is now the United States um, over all of this time. 
um, just the diversity of, of flavors and culinary uses. Um, and I was speaking earlier about how nature can connect us to people. And um, for me, growing food is one of those things. Um, I like to share things, but even if I don't share the, the fruits of my harvest, even when I don't, um, there's a connection to the people who made selections on those plants thousands of years ago. There's a, there's a, a connection to um, people who, who grow food commercially. There's a connection to people who eat, which is, you know, all of us. Um, so I really love peppers. Um, I also really love cucurbit crops, in particular um, um, squash and pumpkins. And it's for similar reasons. And um, I wanted to quickly say that there's this really interesting connection between people and plants and bees here. There's a bee that can only eat one type of pollen, and that is pollen from the genus Cucurbita, which includes squash and pumpkins and a few wild plants like uh, coyote gourd in the Southwest. Um, this bee is found um, throughout uh, the Southwest and Northern Mexico and as far North as Southern Canada as far east as as um, as Maine, let's say, um, this bee followed the people who carried the cucurbit crops northward over millennia, and so this is a this is a story of you know a, a biological um, movement of uh, so a movement of an agricultural crop by people, but a mutualist followed them north and east all of that time and and adapted to. The environment and to the changing changes in the crop plant as people made selections on it all at that time. Is this what's known as the squash bee? Yeah, there are more than two, but the, the story I'm telling there's a single uh, species found in the northeastern part of the U.S. and southern Canada adjacent, and that bee was not there until human beings moved there with this plant after you know the glaciers receded and and things warmed over the last um, uh, uh, ten to twelve millennia, right? Um, uh, the third plant that I would say I'm really interested in is not one thing. It's it's trees. I um, I was I, I was just thinking about this, and um, I uh, I just really like trees and um, all sorts of different species of them. But uh, I just planted a coast mm -hmm. live oak in my backyard. It's uh, five and a half feet tall, and will someday, if allowed to grow, um, you know, outlive me by many decades and spread. <laughs> spread across my neighbor's yards. And I just like the idea of, of there's impermanence there, but it's, it's a time scale that I don't live on and it feels more permanent. And um, there's a temporal connection between me and whoever lives in my house in the future that uh, just makes me feel um, a little bit of happiness. I, again, so appreciate your time today and the work you are doing personally and professionally with Xerxes Society Leaf. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been fun talking to you. Leaf Richardson is an endangered species conservation biologist coordinating the California bumblebee atlas with the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation. The California Bumblebee Atlas is one of eight large regional bumblebee atlas projects across North America working to better understand the status of the close to 50 North American bumblebees in order to make better land management and environmental regulation decisions to ensure the well-being of these critically important keystone species pollinators into the future.
If you're in the Northern California listening region, mark your calendars for the opening of a new in-depth and beautiful exhibit entitled Bombus, the Natural History of Bumblebees, opening in July at Gateway Science Museum on the campus of California State University, Chico, and featuring the spectacular photography and research of plantsman and California bumblebee atlas participant, John Whittlesey. Through his lens, you will never again see bumblebees without a deepened appreciation for them in our lives. Join us again next week when we prepare for the fullness of the summer solstice in conversation once again with Day Shilkret, the man behind the practice known as Morning Altars. It combines nature, art, and ritual. That's next week. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation and the Garden Conservancy. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, tech and web support from Angel Haracha, weekly show transcripts by Doulis Transcription, and communications intern Sheila Stern. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Places distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.